Today is Sunday, February 26, 2017, and this is episode 185 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hello, Jerry. How are you? Good, sir. I'm super duper. How about you? I'm good. And joining me, as usual, is my little feline, Fiona, sitting on the chair next to me. Wow. I think, I think she wants credit. One of these days, because she's usually sitting next to me while I'm recording the podcast. So she's kind of like your your handler, huh? <laughs> more, more more like you know my master, because uh, I respond to her her needs as needed, such as feed me, okay, now pet me. I understand. <laughs> so uh, just a reminder that uh, the thoughts and opinions we express in this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. So um, indeed. Yeah, so a, a couple of big things happened this week. and uh, Coincidentally, you were on vacation. Yeah, and I'd just like to say, you know, hold it together while I'm out, man. Come on. This seems to be a trend. Every time you go on vacation. It's only a few days. <laughs> the internet attempts to burn down. So uh, so one of the one of the uh, big, big stories over the last week was the SHA-1 collision, right? Right. Well, it was a big news story, but is it really big news? Well, because it's not like we didn't see this coming for a long time. No, and, and in, in fact, I would say um, in some ways it's kind of a success story, right? Because we've, you know, there, there's been a lot of people running around for quite some time trying to deprecate SHA-1. You know, I think, um, mm-hmm. I don't remember where, where it landed with, with certificates. I know that one of the... Uh, uh, there's been some certificate shaming going on on the internet with uh, with people who have or with companies who have created you know long long duration or long expiration certificates with SHA-1 hashes and uh, you know it it is an interesting thing that I, I guess we really have to make sure we build into the ecosystem these days is you know right now it's you know, SHA-256 SHA-512 or the kind of the the new hotness. Right, but even but at some point, presumably, you know, even those will will, you know, I I don't think they'll necessarily fall by brute force, but they'll probably fall by some other, you know, means of of uh, expeditious cracking. It, it seems inevitable, and you know, I think I think the point is that we have got to architect with the concept that we're going to have to plug and replace. You know the the hashes and the protocols and the libraries of most yep. of our cryptography on a regular basis. Exactly. And you know it's this should no longer catch us by surprise, but it does. You know, if you look at, for instance, I work in the payment card industry, and so many of the terminals out in the field are hard coded, if you will, or at least very difficult to update to new sorts of encryption libraries. So you, you literally have to replace the hardware to upgrade them. And, you know, that seems like a, uh, a short-sighted design decision. It, and certainly, I don't know all the things that go into it. I don't know why, that, you know, that very well could have been decided and thought about and said, yep, we're going to make this trade-off. But when I think about it, it's like, this is going to happen again and again and again and yep. again. Yep. <laughs> right? So uh, how do we architect in such a way that we don't keep shooting ourselves in the foot when this happens again. Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure necessarily that it's shooting ourselves in the foot as much as it's just, it's just that we have to plan, you know, for, for things that are modern to at some point be obsolete and, and defeatable based on new technology and new understanding. And so I, I really think that just comes down to the design of of the components and software and systems to right. be, you know, to be modular enough that you can plug, you know, you can pull things out and plug things in. And, you know, the other thing that we have to, to be cognizant of, and I, I just, I don't think we fully as an industry really have our head wrapped around how long some of these things can be around for. Right. You know, that we, you know, I think the average company likes to think that 
they're they're gonna you know their customers are gonna renew or you know refresh their stuff every every three to five or seven years, and it, it's just not the case. No, no, yeah, and there's always always going to be things out there that that's around. I mean, the upside is I think you were sort of hinting at this too, is this may be a good example case to bring to an executive to say, hey, we really need to fix this problem. Yep. If you know you've got some Shawan hanging around someplace for various functionality. Now, to be fair, it's still a really theoretical attack, relatively speaking. But it's it's now no longer non-trivial to to make a collision. So this could start cropping up. Yeah, if it's, we're only not gonna get, it's only going to get easier too. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Anyway, um, so so that actually wasn't even on the list of stories, but no, no, just that's freestyling. Um, and so moving on to to our first actual story, and this one comes from uh, uh, let's see from CSO Online, and the title here is "Bleeding Clouds." Cloudflare Cloudflare server errors blamed for leaked customer data. So yeah, this now, was the other big uh, the other big hoopla that happened. What's really funny is uh, the guy who found this really didn't want to call it bleeding clouds, but he yeah. even put that in his notes. <laughs> and, and well, it got called to that anyway. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it, it starts off, so, so just jumping ahead in the story, this was found by, by Tavis um, over at the Google uh, Project Zero. Uh, he finds a lot of stuff, so it's just you know, he's a pretty interesting guy and contributes a lot to to the to the vulnerability world. But he starts off his whole post with, "It took every ounce of my strength not to call this issue cloud bleed." Well, guess what? It got called cloud bleed. It's cl- yep, it's cloud bleed. <laughs> so, so now even if you try not to name it, yep, it's gonna get named. There it is. Have have we? So we've got we've got a name. Clearly, we've got a logo. I've seen those floating around. I don't know if the mascot has been been voted on by the IETF yet, what? and I believe um, the theme song is being worked on by. Um, I think I think the Backstreet Boys are working on the theme song right uh, now. Good. Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing that. Yeah, I think they might rebrand as the Backdoor Boys, but that, oh. in the context of vulnerabilities, makes sense. But they realize that there might be some branding issues. Yeah, I'm gonna let that go. Other connotations. Yeah, I get it. So back to back to the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so it, this actually started off pretty interestingly. Uh, a week ago, Friday, Tavis had had tweeted out. Uh, and at the time, a lot of people thought this was pretty ominous, and and as it turns out, rightly so. And also, he caught some flack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, There's a whole lot of drama around he, this, actually. So, so, yeah, Tavis tweeted out asking if if anybody had a a security contact at Cloudflare because he needed to urgently talk to someone. And as <laughs> and people are coming back, like, why don't you just Google it, dude? <laughs> this is not responsible. How could you not just look it up on LinkedIn? <laughs> yep. Look, lazy web. I get it. That's right. I mean, hey, why not? Why not? It, but it, it, plus, clearly, it furthers the mystique, right? Right, and yeah. clearly, it it was indeed. And then, you know, jumping forward just just a little bit, th- when did this release? When did this come out? Um, Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, when, no, it was Wednesday, I think. Right. Wednesday yeah. night. For Wednesday, yeah. Assuming it was Wednesday. Tuesday, there was hints out there. Yeah. I saw some people tweeting, "Tomorrow's going to be a bad day." Buckle up. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the story, the story here is that Cloudflare, which is a you know big content distribution network that a lot of websites use, in particular because they actually offer a free, um, you know, a, a free tier of service. Um, and and not, you know one of their big claims to fame is they'll help you write out a DDoS attack. And I think uh, there's been you know, a, a fair number of of those lately where Cloudflare has has kind of declared victory from. So anyway, it's a it's a it's a very popular platform with with websites and particularly large websites. Well, apparently, what happened was that sometime last year, Cloudflare was replacing some old code with some you know, some new code. It was a a, a HTML parser. So they had a, 
an old lung in the tooth HTML parser that they were replacing with a new one. They were running the two side by side. And in the course of running the two side by side, they actually uh, triggered a pre-existing bug in the old version of the parser. And what, what happened was uh, the, the parser would overrun its buffer in certain circumstances. And when that happened, and it wasn't, it wasn't a common thing. It was like one, you know, it, at the most, at the peak, it was like one out of every 3.3 million transactions. But, you know, for a really busy CDN, that probably happened, you know, maybe several times a second, I, I'm guessing. Uh, anyway, the, the, the proxies, the, their edge proxies, had um, had this, this buffer overflow, or I should say it's a buffer overrun, and uh, subsequent pages being served would include unrelated HTML, right? So it could include uh, uh, cookies and content from other web pages, you know, that was authenticated. So I'm looking, I'm looking at my cute cat video. Yep. And somebody's a portion of somebody's, I don't know, private chat on OkCupid might be included in the <laughs> yes. web page that comes back. Or, or, or even better, your 1Password, because, you know, 1Password now does no, their online... No, 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 no. I, th- I thought that was LastPass no. that said no, but 1Password was yes. 1Password, the only... So let's be clear on this, because this was a big deal. Okay. There's a lot of drama around this. So, so, so let's circle back around on this, because it's okay. important. But... Uh, just to spoiler warning, what got leaked on the 1Password side was just API transaction data with no actual Uh, sensitive data. Okay. Okay, let me be fair. According to what I saw 1Password put out and other people verified that the 1Pass data that was being seen was still inline encrypted API communications. Is my understanding. Okay. So, because this was, people started panicking on that one. And there was a whole bunch of back and forth about that. The one pass is behind Cloudflare, uh, but they apparently did their own thing as well. Yeah, they he, were beyond TLS. Yeah, T- Tavis said he was seeing session data from one password. Yeah, so, so I'll see if I can find it as we're talking, but because it's a big deal. But the other thing that's interesting is. So I'm a, a standard web browser, and this is one thing I don't know. I'm getting this dummy data back. I'm wondering if my web browser is even rendering in any way, or I even know it as the average user, or if it's just being discarded by uh, my renderer as dummy bad data. So, so um, as far as I can tell, there were a bunch of different manifestations of that. So in in some web pages, it just it was you know kind of mixed in at the top in in a lot of others apparently it was kind of hidden right so right it was it was there and actually was largely indexed by google and other search engines which makes sense in that it depends on you know if they're crawling it they're probably going to be getting that data right i guess it depends on how you parse that data like yep. and how it's given to you because especially with a buffer overrun it may be gibberish if you don't see the full Context, correct, correct. Um, so, circling back on the one pass thing, so I found an article in MacWorld on this. Uh, just for reference, it's a Cloudflare data leakage doesn't reveal one password secrets. Secrets. Um, so, but onepassword.com doesn't use a simple login procedure in which a username and password allows access to stored data and transfer to a secure web connection. Rather, the company's security model expects that an HTTPS connection is vulnerable, so it's only one of only three layers employed inside the HTTPS connection. Now, let's be clear. What was leaking here was the HTTPS connections. AgileBits, that's who who, uh, owns 1Password, uses a second method of transport security. The web browser and server validate each other's identity from when the account was created without sending a password that can be exposed by the Cloudflare leak. Uh, Once validated, the server creates an encryption key that, again, isn't sent over the internet, but derived from that mutually confirmed information. And the data inside that second wrapper remains encrypted. So, in essence, it is correct that he was seeing 1Password communications, but they were still encrypted. Mm. According to this particular 
article and other stuff I've read and 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 Twitter posts and such. Um, Makes sense. But by so, the way, that only that only impacts you if you use the online version, correct. which is relatively new, right? As opposed to the browser plugin or something else, right? So, um, quoting from the uh, security chief of Agile Bits. Uh, quote, we designed one password from the outset with the expectation that TLS could fail. So if some traffic is exposed through a TLS value, it doesn't cause any problems. Which makes sense when you think about man-in-the-middle attacks, um, things like your AV intercepting your TLS for inspection, all sorts of things. It's probably a wise design move on their part. Yep. So, I and again, I'm not, I've got no dog in the hunt with one password, but I just want to be no, that's accurate in our good, information. Good point. Uh, but there, but there apparently were conversations and and a, a fair amount of actual data from sites like Uber and OkCupid um, and and others. And apparently, there were a total of uh, four potentially four million domains involved. Yeah, that's crazy. So that's which uh, which big. is interesting because now we've got another story about the centralization around. A few key service providers. Yep. Right? Yep, that's right. We were talking about this with uh, things like email and other stuff, and here in and and Dyn and whatnot. Now here we are again, where we've got a centralized provider, who in theory is the subject matter experts, having a flaw that impacts a huge chunk of people, you know, providers on the internet. Yeah. So so there's a second story. Uh, also from CSO, and the title there is Carter's Capitalize on Cloudflare Problems. Claim- well, before we move off oh, this, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I do think that there's an interesting thing, which is yeah. that this was fixed, I think, in something like 22 business hours. Yeah, I did want to. I did want to uh, touch on that. They, yeah, um, the the blog post from uh, Cloudflare. They they actually were were quite transparent. Yes, and, and they, I did, sorry, I they, didn't realize you wanted to circle back on that. Yeah they, yeah, they talked about how they had actually mitigated the problem within, I think, 45 minutes of learning about it, and then they uh-huh. had pushed out code fixes within like something like seven hours. So it was yeah, like, it, and I will give kudos to Cloudflare. Their, their transparency, I think, is the right way to handle these sorts of situations. I think they did a really good job. Yeah. Uh, explaining what happened and why. And, and, and I think the way they mitigated it was they identified that there was three particular services that were lightly used that were the source of the problem. They just turned those off. Right. Now, of course, the issue is if that stuff is still indexed and cached out of various search providers, that's yeah. an issue. I believe Google is scrubbing, but I don't know if any others are yet. Yeah, I'm not sure either. One other funny thing, that Cloudflare uh, offered uh, Tavis a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was um, that was kind of funny. Which caused it's, now. There's also a whole. We're not here to talk about the drama, but it's interesting that there's a whole bunch more drama that came about with how this was disclosed, and it spun up that whole responsible disclosure debate again. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it. People sniping I, back and forth. I, but I don't think I don't think Tavis, as far as I can tell, wasn't. You know, he didn't spill the beans. He he actually did contact Cloudflare and worked with them, and and uh, and Cloudflare acknowledged that in their blog post. Which, by the way, I I highly recommend everybody read the the blog post because they describe the 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 process they went through and the things they had done to prepare themselves for responding to this kind of an incident, which. Which I thought is, is really a good, very good read and something to take to heart. You know, it's a it's an unfortunate thing, and I'll, I'll tell you, there's been a ton of discussion. I've seen people contacting me and whatnot, asking if you're a customer, what do you do, right? And mm-hmm. and there's no good answers, unfortunately, because you don't necessarily know, you know, what kind of what what or if data if your data was you know, was was affected. So you kind of have to assume the worst worst case scenario, right? Yeah, it's a tough situation to to diagnose and and recover from because you don't, like you said, you don't know. You don't know if your passwords are exposed. You don't know if nothing was exposed. Right. You know, and this could be one that you may be able to dodge a bullet on, but 
We'll see. And which leads to the story you were about to, to launch into when I derailed you back into the original story. Yeah, so so the, the second story is uh, just basically a, a continuation of the first, which is titled Carter's Capitalizing Cloudflare Problems Claim 150 Million Logins for Sale. So there's a, there's a, a Carter form on the internet that's claiming to have 150 million logins from uh, from sites that were impacted by the, uh, the the cloud bleed bug, including sites like Uber and Netflix. But but wait, but wait, Netflix doesn't use Cloudflare. Mm-hmm. Hmm. My theory is it's probably old data that they're trying to, to dump. Yeah. Yeah. So so you know there there could be some new some new data, but I guess this is being sold for. Uh, two hundred fifty thousand bucks, and you know, hey, is there honor honor among thieves? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it, it, but here's the problem with the you know that sort of format is that if they're trying to be a repeat seller, you know, they get a reputation that is a problem. Well, yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, so so anyway, it's it the the, the premise seems a little suspicious, right? Yeah. Now I'm I'm sure. There definitely were probably some amount of credentials leaked. The 150 million number seems really excessive, especially this rapidly. Yeah, I, I, I'm very skeptical. Yeah, but you know, it's hard to prove a negative, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah, but but anyway, kind of the you know, going back to the the original point. You know, I it does seem like Cloudflare did the best they could in the in the situation they had. Uh, the The actual mechanics of the bug was incredibly simple. Uh-huh. You know, they they just and and in fact, it was um, it was kind of a a dumb bug, right? Because it was the it was C code. It was written by uh, <laughs> by a a scripting language. And and the scripting language just created a you know a, a, an equality check. It was looking for the end of a buffer, and it was looking trying to do a direct comparison rather than to see if it was greater than or equal to. Mm-hmm. And you know, if it had been greater than or equal to, none of this would have happened. <laughs> and and you know, and to their credit, by the way, throughout the throughout the post, their you know Cloudflare's post, they they keep pointing out that you know the, the things that went wrong, and and but they owned it. Right, they're like this was not a problem with the parser; it was a problem with the way we used the parser. Right, and 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 so, I, I you know, kudos for them. They did a they, you know, they messed up. We don't really know how bad the impact is. May you know may not know for a long time, uh, but they're owning it. So, yeah, and and it was in theory quickly resolved, which is. Circling back, the upside of centralizing your services in a couple of providers, they can also fix a huge chunk of their customers at once. Yes. Right. So it's a double-edged sword. Right. If this were, you know, think about this, if this had been something like, a, I don't know, like a heart bleed, which is still, I think I saw a report the other day, 500,000 vulnerable devices still out on the internet open. Yep. If you have a centralized problem, you can also have a centralized solution. So this is... The double-edged sword there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it is. It is. Uh, it is something. I'll tell you. That regulators are becoming really interested in the the concentration of risk problems mm-hmm. that these central providers create. And um, you know, I guess it's just dependent on your point of view whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, on the on, well, you, you get if. You know, if 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 everybody is responsible for doing their own thing, right? You get you get a lot of crap, but at the same time, you know, not not everything is going to break at the same time from from the right. same cause, right? And that's that's the fundamental dichotomy we have here, right? You either have the monolithic thing that's robust, but when it breaks, it's it's horrible, or you know, you have uh, you have a, a lot of little things that are prone to failure that take down individual sites. But there's a flip side of this so that I think the auditors may not always look at, which is, yes, there's a concentration of risk, but there's also a concert- concentration of expertise and yep. a concentration of mitigation. Yeah, yeah. But but at the same time, though, it, I guess it depends on what what 
what risk or, or what harm or peril are you trying to cover, right? Because if it's, if it's downtime, then yeah, you know, if, if, if the whole problem with Cloudflare would have been downtime, like this would have been a, you know, an awesome story, you know, <laughs> but, but the problem is it's not that it was data disclosure, Right, and you and, and you can't unring the bell like that. Data is it's out there. Uh, security dog agrees. I, I hear that. She's, <laughs> she's not happy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a tough. It, 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 here's why I'm sort of harping on this: is that I think it's inevitable. We're going that way. We're not going to get away from centralizing on best of breed providers. It makes Absolutely. too much business sense. It's the whole. It's the whole. Don't do something that isn't your core competency writ large. We are now commoditizing the internet as plumbing, and it's just got to happen. Absolutely, it is the uh, it is the end game. For now IT. you could use two different providers, but that doesn't stop a data leakage issue necessarily. Right. So, right. I, this is why I'm sort of I keep coming back to this concept because I'm struggling with it, and I just don't see it stopping. Um, well. Doesn't need to be stopped. <laughs> I guess. Well, I, I think I think where I'm going with this is that regulators are going to have to get on board. They're they're going to have to find a way to 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 deal yeah, with. Yeah, you know, it, from a from a regulator perspective, it it actually has a, you know, th there's an upside, right? Because now they only have one or two places to go, you know, kick them in the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's true. <laughs> Right, so you know, if you if you've got all of your regulated entities using Cloudflare, I mean, just hypothetically, right, uh -huh. and and you're worried about, you know, whatever, right? Now you only have to go to Cloudflare. You only have to go to them and beat them up. Right. So anyway, um, moving on to our next story, which comes from bleepingcomputer.com, and the title is "Malware Used to Attack Polish Banks Contained False Flags Blaming Russian Hackers." I know. Can you believe this? I personally can, can am you believe it? Shocked. I mean, how would you, how who would be so low, so low? I, I, to I fake attribution information. I cannot believe it. This First this of all, shatters like you know everything in 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 infosec land. Are there are there no limits? It, it, Is there nothing we can believe in? Seems like no. I so so anyway, we talked last week about the um, you know the, the the spate of attacks against uh, against the uh, Polish bank and the linkage to Mexican banks and and uh, uh, an alleged link to the SWIFT uh, attacks and whatnot. And so so this this particular article is talking about how BA uh, researcher for. BAE systems looking at the malware used in the Polish banks found some uh, Russian language, Russian words, which apparently this person speaks fluent Russian and determined that the, that the Russian words were, were kind of um, like brain dead plants, you know, in, intended. Uh, you yeah. Know. When, when he did, when he did the Google translate rather than actually Copying and pasting the true translation, he translated the phonetic pronunciation. Right, but but so I was thinking about this. If you were a you know a, the Russian military hackers, that's true. Wouldn't you do this? So clearly, I cannot choose the wine in front of you. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. However, if I knew that the Russian hackers might be smart enough to do this, I might do it to look like the Russian hackers are smart enough to do this. Correct. But if you knew that. See, what I think this means is attribution is fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> and every time you hear somebody say, "Clearly, it was a nation state," but you know, but you know what? They, so, a kitten dies. So they actually go into blaming. Uh, it's not Russia; it's North Korea. Well, clearly, I mean, I, I, that went without stating. I didn't even think. We had to say that, did we? No, no. But I, I, what I find interesting, though, is is the uh, the allegation here is that this rushing this this 
Russian, I'm sorry, this Polish bank attack, which was apparently related to a, an attack in Mexico and in Uruguay, is apparently also related to the SWIFT bank, the SWIFT $81 million theft, and, dun-dun-dun, the Sony hack. Right. All apparently done by this Lazarus group. And they're basing it upon similarity of yeah. the code and the attack methodology, right? Right. They're using the same yep. API, dynamic API loading techniques, and the same mm-hmm. Enigma protector code packing system. Which nobody else on the planet could possibly use. Nope. Not allowed. Not permitted. Nope. Nope. They, they have filed copyright on that particular technique. And they're, they're not allowed to change their, uh, you know, their, their time zones or you know, the, the, the language set on their, key, on their computer. None of that. It's, all, it's against the rules. <laughs> it's true. So, it's true. So, I, you know, we're making light of this, but in all seriousness, this is the challenge when people say authoritatively, based on code review, that it's group XYZ. It's, they might be right, but it doesn't have to be. There's, unless a group is absolutely not sharing their data with anybody and didn't get their data from anybody and self-developed it entirely, how can you ever really know if multiple groups aren't using the same code packages? Yeah, and, and you know what, what kills me is you, you, we make this assumption that you know, it, it takes a nation state to, to have the resources to develop some of these super sophisticated uh, pieces of malware. But then we also seem to make the same, you know, the assumption that they're, they're also not sophisticated enough to, you know, to, to make it look like it was the, the work of whoever they wanted it to look like. Right. And, and by the way, it, I'm not saying that it's not a nation state. I mean, I'm just saying that we don't know who the hell it was. Right. Yeah. I think that, yeah. I think that's fundamentally it is. We, we can't say authoritatively. Yeah. Anyway, it, it just gets under my skin. I'm sorry. It's all right. I, so, you know, I don't, I don't want you to get upset about this. No, it's, it's fine. It's fine. So, uh, right. so here's one more thing to get, get upset about. Uh, securityweek.com has a story called, This is What Hackers Think of Your Defenses. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. This is, this is my fault. I know. Damn you, Andy. <laughs> so, uh, so this company called Nuix, I guess is how you say it, did a survey of, um, of hackers, and I used air quotes there, and by hackers, they mean penetration testers, at DEF CON in 2016. And so they asked them a whole bunch of questions. And just, just, for, just for the question, why did it take them from August to February to publish this? I believe, don't know for sure, but I believe it was coincide, time to coincide with RSA. The, oh. The marketing conference. That's right. <laughs> Marketers got a market, man. Marketers got a market. All right, carry That's on. right. So, um, so, you know, there, there's, it, when, you, when you read the, the actual report, they, they're trying to differentiate themselves with this report from, you know, from the, you know, the eighteen not the AT&T, sorry, the Verizon report and, and some of the other big data breach reports. And, and they're, they're looking at it a different way and, and saying not how did breaches happen. They're saying how do people who breach systems do it. And, and so that's kind of an interesting take, but they don't seem to really address the, you know, the, the obvious bias that creates. But, but, you know, be that as it may, uh, they... So they, they had a couple of um, interesting stats they, they pulled into the article. So, for instance, that 84, or sorry, 88% of these hackers claim that they, uh, they can compromise their targets, their intended targets, within 12 hours, and then 80% of them can exfiltrate data within another 12 hours. And they, they contrast that with the two to 300, or sorry, 250 to 300 days that it usually takes to detect a breach, and you know the the the, the thing that that made me or that, that struck me when I looked at that contrast is that you know if if you 
have a, a, a IT department or a security department that doesn't detect a breach within, you know, I don't know, hours or a day or two days, it's probably not going to be detected by that organization. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, either you're going to pick it up on it. Well, I, I get, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I got to think about that one for a little bit. I guess it depends on where you're instrumented and what sort of detection technology you have. It's entirely possible you might miss the initial breach, but then when lateral movement occurs or escalation movement, you might pick that up. Or when they start poking at sensitive data, if you've got that more protected, that's an interesting question, right? Because you're 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 somewhat assuming that if you're not spotting the initial behavior that led to the breach, what are you going to spot? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's I guess somewhat of a rhetorical question, but it 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 is an interesting thing to think about, and, and yeah. so. You know, if, uh, my my guess is, if if we had perfect data, the ability to, to kind of look at perfect data, we would see, you know, a cluster of companies detecting breaches, you know, within hours and days, and then you would see the rest of it heavily skewed towards third parties finding it, you know, on on carding sites right. or you know what whatever then being notified, right? Yeah, and then they start looking at logs and they see the signal exactly. Yeah, exactly. I just, I, I, I'm, I'm just not yeah. thinking that companies are, are you know, going back and looking at 200 day old logs and saying, "Oh my goodness, look at that." Yeah, something gave them a heads up. Right. Whether some other defense was tripped, some other detection was tripped, or they get a third party heads up, or the county password, you know, inspector comes by and mentions it. Something happens. Yep. Exactly. So they, they did talk about how, um, they did mention that a, a third of, uh, kind of in line with this, a third of them uh, say they're not detected by the security teams. Uh, let's see. Then they talk a lot about training and, and uh, qualifications. And they, uh, they say that 70% of employers, I'm not really sure where this, oh, I guess it came from an ISACA survey, sorry. 70% of employers require a cert certificate for um, you know, for I IT security people. Uh, but 75% of the people that were surveyed in this don't believe that certificates are you know, an accurate measure of knowledge or competence. So it's probably not a big surprise there. Um, they, they, then they talked about, again, specifically talking about these penetration testers. 4% of them had more than 10 certs. And 66% had less than three. And, you know, penetration testers are such a narrow percentage of the overall IT security workforce. It's kind of an odd thing for them to be calling out. But, you know, whatever. The, the, the one thing that, by the way, if you're interested in getting into penetration testing, I think this is a great report to read because it talks about a lot of the, you know, Kind of behaviors and where do they spend their time? Where do these penetration testers spend their time? Are they, are they, um, you know, are, are they, what are they reading? What are they studying? Those sorts of things. So it's a it's it's an interesting report from that perspective. Um, let's see what other. I went through the report and found some other things. Uh, they said ten percent of the you know, of the uh, these. Penetration testers were concerned with firewalls. Two percent were concerned with antivirus. Thirty-six uh, percent say that modern endpoint security protection is effective, which was interesting. Kind of tells me maybe there's a big variation in the competence of these penetration testers, and and rather than necessarily anything intrinsic with you know the big environment, and they didn't really seem to address that. 25% uh, of them said there were no controls that could stop them. And that's kind of the other, <laughs> the other end of the spectrum was God complex people. Right. Um, I, you know, I have, what, what I have a pair I of scissors that... <laughs> that <laughs> and, and a them. dog that will bite through cat sick cables. That's right. Uh, you know, one thing I, that they did point out that I thought was really good advice was from from the article, which is actually quoting from the report, quote, while fix the biggest problems appears to be a logical approach to remediation, 
and they're talking about once you get the pen test report. It misrepresents the true nature of vulnerabilities and provides a false sense of security for decision makers, warns the report. Quote, if you only address specific vulnerabilities that have been chosen arbitrarily and devoid of context, it's a cybersecurity equivalent of taking an aspirin for a brain tumor. You're addressing a symptom as opposed to the root cause. End quote. I think that is a really valid and valuable observation, which is that when you have a pen test and they exploit, they're figuring out one methodology to exploit. If you're not looking at the core root cause of that methodology or of that class of problems or fundamentally how that data is being protected, you're missing out on the point of the pen test. Yep. It's basically like saying, I ran my vulnerability scanner, and as soon as I found the first vulnerability, I stopped scanning that server. And I fixed that one vulnerability, and I'm good. There could be dozens more. Yep. So that is a very, especially when you're doing annual pen tests. I really do. They're valuable. They're helpful. I'm not dogging on them. But they, they, if you only fix what's identified in the report, and you don't look at the bigger picture, you look at the problem behind that problem, uh, you do get a false sense of security. Yeah, and they, they, they went a little bit further, at least in one of the graphs, <coughs> talked about how 10% of the, uh, of the respondents said that they typically saw all of the, the findings remediated on a subsequent pen test. 75% found some amount of remediation, and 5% found uh, no remediation. So, interesting stats there. 30 Thirty percent of the, the the test penetration testers surveyed said they believe they're they were employed solely for compliance purposes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Why? Because compliance generates funding. Yeah. yeah, I get budget for compliance. Yeah, and then they then they there were a bunch of um, you know kind of gee whiz numbers like how often do you use social engineering and. You know, do you use vulnerability scanners, which seem really odd questions to ask, a, you know, a, a population of people because presumably they're all going to have different <laughs> different tactics that they use. Um, they did say 60% use open source tools. I thought that was interesting. 43%. But by the way, that doesn't mean that, you know, they. I, I assume that doesn't mean they only used open source tools. Um and they're not burning O days, that's for sure. Yeah, 43% attack servers directly, and 40% are using phishing. So, you know, those are so here's the problem, is we don't know what sort of criteria and rules are placed around these pen tests. Yes, that's, yes, that's exactly, you know, so, so especially with social engineering, you know, there are a lot of pen test engagements where the, you know, the, the, the company who, who is hiring the, the test out does not want that. I mean, there's right. a there's a lot of artificial, especially if you look at things for compliance like PCI. Yes, test that website. Right. Okay. Is not every, not anything can... around it. Nope. <laughs> just just that, that website. Yep. Well, that's a really false sense of security. Right. You know, they're testing one particular vector. Right. It would be interesting is to ask, you know, if. if um, you know, kind of hindsight's twenty twenty, right? It, you know, what is the from their perspective? What are the most effective methods, right? Not necessarily how often do you do a, a social engineering test or a phishing test. It's what are what is the most effective means to in your experience? Is it social? You know, is it social engineering slash phishing? Is it something else? And I, I'm going to guess that it's probably social engineering. It's just a situation where they're not always allowed to do it. Right. I, I would completely agree. I, I go back and forth on this. I personally would rather hire the skill set of a pen tester and say, do a, do a white box open book audit. But it doesn't have the same visceral reaction with executives as we hired these guys to break into us and they did. Right. Yep. So it's it's it, there is a political game here. There is a political aspect of how you go about this to get the funding you need to, to fix things. I don't like it, but it is what it is. And we, to be effective with our organizations, we have to figure that out. Yep. There were two other interesting stats I saw in there for, for varying reasons. One of them was that 9% of the penetration testers said that they 
never encounter a system they can't break, but never is described as zero to five percent of the time. So <laughs> never with a with a with a uh, you know uh, a bit of error. Uh, suddenly, I, I'm blanking on the term. What's what's the statistical term for uh, <laughs> level of error? Yeah, uh, it's a confidence interval. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, so that, that was a little bothersome to me. And then, which kind of sets the whole stage for the, for how you want to read a report like this. But, uh, and then they said that 50% of the testers changed their methodology with every engagement, which I thought was really interesting. I would have, I would have expected, and maybe this is just terminology things, right? But I would have expected not to, to, to not see that kind of variation, Margin of error. That's the term. Margin of error. There you go. Suddenly, see, it's late on a Sunday and I'm getting Alzheimer's. Well, that's because you're old. I haven't listened to a thing you've said until I figured that out, too. I was like, damn it, I need to figure out what I said. All right. So, um, moving on to our last story for this evening. Uh, and this is just a, a quick follow up from the, the Yahoo breach. Actually, Yahoo breaches. So, um, last I don't think you're. I don't think you're pronouncing that correctly. Yahoo? There you go. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> anyway, um, th- there was a story, I guess, sometime last year about how Verizon was trying to get a $1 billion discount off of the um, $5 billion price or so. And, uh, well, they didn't get that much off, but they did, they did end up getting a discount of $350 million dollars. Which is which is pretty good as a result of the breach, and probably even more importantly, uh, Yahoo has to bear the cost, bear any costs associated with the breach. That's scary. Yeah, which which is a you know that's even more to me. That's even more interesting than the three hundred fifty million dollars. So. Anyway, yeah, I mean that—that's—that's that's unlimited potential liability. I, I, wow. <laughs> yep. Yep. Anyway, uh, that just kind of goes to show how important this stuff can be, right? I mean, that, so that's real think, money. How do you think that conversation went? I think it was kind of like you know what a used car dealership. <laughs> What's it gonna take <laughs> <laughs> to get this deal done today? <laughs> so, so we know, we know our our girl's been beat up a little bit, and she's not looking her best, but. You know, she's still she's still good for for yeah. marriage or you know you know because now it's social like negotiating a higher dowry and you know two hundred years ago this this analogy's falling apart on me but seriously I that had to have been a really uncomfortable conversation oh yeah well I would imagine it's been probably uncomfortable for a long time mm. but that's you know three hundred and fifty million bucks yeah that's um. Now, here's an interesting question. If it was two years from now, do you think they would have gotten the discount? I don't know. Because we see so many companies that have breaches, at least tracking their stock price, they bounce back usually within six months to a year. Yeah. I, so when I, when I first saw the headline, I was thinking that the, that the discount was, was you know, to offset any potential you know, future losses associated with the breach, but they've, they've included they've, that. They've included that in in the you know in the price. That's a that's a separate element. So so, so they've got to assume that the core business that they're buying is now worth less than it was before. So that's right. Brand value, current customer base, and future customer base. It's it's pure value of the company that's yeah. been taken away. Which now, which is it's just so it's it's a really interesting thing because I'm you know I, I guess I I'm not entirely clear. What the heck, Yahoo's business model is anymore, right? But, but um, you know, just doesn't it doesn't seem like they have a you know a, a giant brand that's um, that's been tarnished by this. So I, I I'm, I'm really interested to, to know what the math it was, but you know, obviously we'll never we'll never get to hear that. But yeah, uh, interesting but it, story. But it, it kind of shows this is why what we do is important. Nearly 10% discount. Right. But I go back to, if they weren't in the middle of negotiations, would it have been so severe? 
I don't know. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, you know, this look, Marissa Mayer can now she has she can only have like five mansions instead of seven. So interestingly, I was just reading the the actual press release. Under the amendment terms, Yahoo will be responsible for fifty percent of any cash liabilities incurred. Following, oh, not so it's fifty percent. Okay, half of it. Uh. Hmm. So uh, liabilities following uh, the closing related to non-SEC government investigations and third-party litigation related to the breaches. I, liabilities I, arising from shareholder lawsuits and SEC investigations will continue to be the sole responsibility of Yahoo. That was what I read. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So. Interesting. So shareholder lawsuits and SEC lawsuits or investigations will be Yahoo. Uh, non-shareholder, non-SEC will be 50-50. Right. Interesting. Which is interesting because <laughs> Yahoo's responsible, but they're owned by <laughs> Verizon. Well, I... So I, that that's more of a P&L game. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how that will work out. Well, it out. could also limit the liability to, you know, to, the, to the parent company. True. True. You know, if there and, were, and I, I imagine that they're probably going to hold the stock separately. That would make sense. Right. So that so that any chargebacks will go against the the shareholders of of Yahoo, huh. the Yahoo portion. So, anyway, interesting stuff. It, yeah. It, you know, this is this is real money, right? That you know, we're we're actually starting to see uh, some some big dollars associated with bad cyber behavior <laughs> so anyway that is it for this week i just want to point out three weeks in a row it's amazing here we go Let's go for four <laughs> thanks everyone for listening appreciate yep. it Th- thank th- you and as always thank you very much to our patreon donors you guys are amazing still boggles my mind i'm i don't even know what to say to 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 show you my appreciation Thank you much. And uh, if you want to find links to the stories, you can go to our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kelly on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk again next week. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.